Good evening and welcome to the RA. My name is Amy Blewett and I'm the Events and Lectures Coordinator here at the RA. Before we begin, can you ensure that digital devices are turned to silent? We are not expecting a fire alarm to sound, but in the event of a fire alarm, please exit the building using the door to the back of the room. Following tonight's event, we will welcome you to join us in the saloon where books are available for purchase for the book signing and you can exchange your ticket for a free drink. I'm delighted now to hand over to the RA's Director of Artistic Programmes, Tim Marlowe. Thank you. Um, this is an academy and all sorts of debate and discussion should take place here. It does take place here. And um, one of the things I'm really delighted about tonight is not just because it's part of an ongoing collaboration with Pindrop, who are a great organisation with whom the Academy's worked before and we're going to keep working with, I hope. Um, and people like William Boyd, Graham Swift um, and others have, have been here and, and done readings. But Lionel Shriver is singular in the way I think tonight's going to be. Because um, in a way I began by thinking, now what will the connections be? How will this work? And I thought, well, Kiefer has made 60% of his work of books. And um, for him, the book is essential. He's described his work as often a, a conversation with dead poets who he feels are standing behind him, shouting when he's getting something wrong or right. And this, I thought, was a, a writer's dream. And then I also discovered that Lionel had said that when she was seven years old that she wanted to be a writer. And she duly fulfilled that criteria or that desire. Kiefer told me not so long ago that when he was six or seven he wanted to be the Pope. It didn't work. <laughs> And I think, actually, there the similarity ends. And what is going to happen this evening is that Lionel's going to read a short story. The connections between that and Kiefer are up to you. There's no arch attempt at a conversation. I've tried to describe it as a filter through which some of you may go into the exhibition and see it in a different way. And Lionel just looked at me and went, yeah, maybe. I mean, that maybe is my interpretation. So let's enjoy that singular event and let's then do what is demanded of us, which is actually to use our own imaginations and go and see the show in a new way. There will be questions afterwards. Lionel's going to take them, but I'm happy to prompt if necessary. But just before she begins, I'd just like Simon Oldfield from Pindrop just to come and say a few words. Simon, thanks. What I don't want to do <laughs> is take the short story with me. Thanks, Tim. And thanks everyone for coming this evening to Pindrop. It really is a great privilege to be here in this amazing room, introduced by Tim, and then about to introduce the incredible Lionel Shriver. Um, I don't think she needs any introduction. You're all here because of your love, presumably, of Lionel's work. And it's going to be a complete privilege to hear her read one of her own short stories. For those of you who don't know about Pindrop, it was founded by me, Simon Oldfield, and my friend Elizabeth Day. Um, it was started in the, in the gallery to explore the relationship between art and literature. And as Tim said, it's not that sort of forced link. It's about leaving a lot up to you, but just putting, it, putting the ingredients together, make, allowing things to sort of sit and allow you to think about what sinks in and what becomes right for you. Um, so marrying those two things in this setting, continuing our series with the Royal Academy, is unbelievably fantastic. I'll hand you over now to Lionel Shriver with no further ado. Thanks very much. Good evening. I'm of the view that this story and Anselm Kiefer have nothing in common. 
<laughs> Aside perhaps from the fact that the Kiefer exhibit is excellent and the story's not bad either. <laughs> I've, uh, for the last few years, started to accumulate a strange collection of stories and one uh, novella that I hope at some point to publish as a collection. And they all, all the pieces have to do with property. And I think it's gonna be a bestseller in the UK. <laughs> Actually had somebody come up to me at, uh, at a festival in East Anglia last weekend and she, she was um, fervent. She says, listen, I, I really, there's one thing that nobody seems to be writing about. I really want you to write about it. I, and, and I say, what's that? She says, mortgages. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't about mortgages, but it's close. And the title of the story is Vermin. I don't know if the moral of this story is that you should never buy a house. That's a pretty useless moral anyway in a country where home ownership is enshrined as such a wholesome aspiration that mortgage interest is tax deductible. Who would listen? And I'm reluctant to reduce what happened between Michael and me to such humdrum advice. Yet other stories would seem to distill the same cautionary chapter heading of a marital guide. Never buy a house. Not long ago in Manhattan, some geese in the midst of a divorce was so incensed by the prospect of his ex getting her hands on their landmark Upper East Side townhouse that he blew it up. I came across another local story too. Sutler, so you had to read between the lines. A rich banker married a younger woman shortly after his first wife died. These newlyweds also bought a flash house in the city worth millions and spent three years doing it up. But by the time the couple finally moved in, the marriage was on the rocks. He packed up after a few months. I read about the court case. The banker was appealing the decision that he had to keep paying 50 grand a month in mortgage payments since his former wife still lived there. Apparently in the divorce papers, he'd charged she was unreasonable. I laughed. It wasn't in the article, but I knew what happened. They fell out over the house. He only learned the kind of woman he'd married when she started obsessing over the wainscoting. But that's not my story exactly. We never had any wainscoting. I'll never forget first walking into what I would shortly christen with affection, the little dump. Michael and I had been together for just under a year, living in his studio in Greenpoint. With my paint box having to compete with propagating guitars, amps, and recording equipment, the apartment was cramped. So we were looking to pool our resources and rent something more spacious. Until that afternoon, the search had been depressing. Properties in Brooklyn were proving way beyond our budget, and every place had something wrong with it. Even if the apartment didn't keep the refrigerator in the living room and the bathtub in the kitchen, 
we picked up right away that previous residents had been unhappy there. It's funny how you can tell. Misery steeps soft furnishings as indelibly as tobacco. So exhilarated with one another, we spurned other people's residue of gloom. Yet the little dump was cheerful. In the sleepy family neighborhood of Windsor Terrace, it was located at the very end of a cul-de-sac called Trevanion Close, a designation somehow both intimate and noble. The street was unnaturally secluded for New York. When we met the owner out front, neighborhood kids were sprawled in the middle of the road, drawing castles in colored chalk on the tarmac. It wasn't much more than a minute after the jabbering owner had let us in the front door when I twirled in the big middle room and declared, I think we could live here. I hadn't even seen upstairs. Granted, this tumble-down two-bedroom was cheaply built and flimsy. Wooden parquet, maybe, but the floors were thin and creaked. Nothing was plumb. The sill of the back window canted a good 15-degree angle to the baseboard below. We'd soon discovered that the doors upstairs were hung askew. The result was a goofy, funhouse discombobulation that made you slightly seasick. The fittings were tasteless and fake. Patterned to look like granite, the kitchen counters were plastic. Over the years, the grungy brown carpet on the stairs must have absorbed gallons of cat pee. Otherwise, the enclosed front porch was faced with a bank of windows through which light streamed in as it also flickered at the back, where the kitchen and dining room windows were overgrown with an enormous grapevine reaching beyond its square-framed trellis in the tiny yard and climbing the exterior brick. I admired the vine's ambition. In late September, its leaves were still broad and green, and I wondered if we might pick them for making Greek dalmathas or collect the next harvest of fruit and try our hand at homemade wine. Okay, we never tried either project. Grape, grape leaves have to be brined, and if I wasn't up for that, I definitely wasn't up for wine. Still, the caprices were enticing at the time. The foliage tinted the air green, so the canopied windows with canopied windows, we wouldn't need curtains. In all, a happy house, or it was. Besides, a junky, knocked-together quality was intrinsic to the property's charm. The house didn't take itself too seriously. It was a joke house, which meant we wouldn't have to take it seriously either. In those days, we cherished a drollness to our environs, a lightness and silliness and transience, reflecting the fact that wherever we stood was mere backdrop. That's what it's like when you're first in love. You feel so hyper-real, so radiantly authentic, that no one and nothing else can compete, as if you and your beloved alone are three-dimensional and the rest of the world is flat. That's why the frank fakery of this ramshackle dive on Trevanion Close was so appealing, 
like its farcical excuse for marble around the bathroom sink, more plastic. The two-story hovel had the atmosphere of a cardboard city in Hollywood, and that made us the stars of the show. Even our negotiation of the lease with the landlord was bogus, a mere gesturing toward due process. I guess the place had been empty for weeks, and Bob was desperate for cash. Once months had gone by, and he still hadn't repaired the leak in the porch roof, we'd be pronouncing his name in eye-roll italics. We'd been nervous that this shifty-eyed owner would insist on a credit check or recoil from our bohemian self-employment. But all he cared about was his deposit, until Michael finally asked in puzzlement, don't you at least want to know what we do for a living? So Bob asked, but only because Michael had told him to. God, we couldn't believe we were in New York. I mean, we weren't squatters, and we were responsible, and we would somehow, by scraping for every job, pay the rent on time. But Bob didn't know that. From someone who proved a pretty slippery character himself, the trust was baffling. I remain certain that for close to two years, Michael and I were supremely contented in that house. Although it saddens me, that what happened later inserts a dimming scrim between then and now. The present so colors the past that it's amazing we can remember anything at all, really. And maybe we can't. The romances of strangers are somewhere between inaccessible and incomprehensible to other people. So you would just have to take my word for it how vertiginously I was in love with Michael Espiner and he with me. Sadly, at this point I have to take my own word for it. There was something about his hips, his excruciatingly narrow hips, and the way the thick black leather belt settled on them just so. He was a jobbing musician then. And when I went to his gigs, I remember being jealous of his guitar. On breaks between sets, we'd cocoon on one of the ratty sofas that lined the funky past-the-hat clubs he played, my head on his shoulder with, I now realize, the kind of dreamy, gooey look in my eyes that makes other people sick. I have a feeling we may have been the butt of a few jokes, but even if we'd known, we wouldn't have been phased. We were impervious. That's what makes folks who don't happen to be in love themselves especially nauseated by swooning couples. The frustration that you obviously don't care that you're making them sick. Sure, the whole musician thing was a turn on, but I wasn't solely enchanted by the mystique of Michael's smoky, free-willing life. I loved his music. Not rock exactly, but a bluesy, reflective, sorrowful style that I could best compare to Jeff Buckley. The lazy, lingering, lateral feel of his tunes also infused Michael's manner. Sitting, he'd prop his tailbone on the edge of a couch, stretch his long legs straight out as if daring someone to trip over them, and extend both arms along the back cushion with the fingers draped. 
he exuded a savorous lack of urgency that was relaxing and that sank us into moment by moment as into a sequence of plush pillows. He was a man whose unusual inhabitation of the present tense made you wonder in what distant temporal dimension everyone else was living. Michael also had a whimsical fuck it sign. On one amble through the East Village, he pulled me into a chic retro shop and demanded the woman's hat in the window, a cocky red number with a partridge plume, without even asking the price. It was $140, and he didn't blink. He couldn't afford it. And I still feel badly that the feather was crushed in our final move. Yet if Michael had a cool career, I like to think that I did too. Maybe I've attended to those news stories about mansions ruining people's lives, because back then I was hired to work in many similar east side townhouses in Manhattan. I painted indoor murals, a nature scene on a bathroom wall, a jungle theme for a kid's room. The duller but harder jobs entailed daubing plaster columns with the swirls of marble, streaking sheetrock with the fine variegated layers of wood grain, or pointillating a surface with the multiple grays, pearls, and blacks of a pebbled beach. The latter sort of work had a particular art to it. You had to stylize the execution just enough to indicate that you knew you weren't fooling anybody. Yet fakery done well enough, painstakingly and honestly enough, has a beauty all its own. By the time I met Michael, I'd accumulated just enough clients by word of mouth that I could do my part in keeping Bob off our backs. The point is we were both freelancers, so we made our own schedules. Though maybe it's time I clarified that despite the seat of the, seat of the pants finances, we weren't kids anymore. Michael was 35 when we met, so I must have been 33 both old enough to have been through the romantic ringer, old enough to get worried that it was never going to happen for us, that a cold roast chicken from the deli section of key food noshed straight from the plastic tray while propped before yet another rerun of Requiem for a Dream with no one to whom to marvel why this incredible film still seems so culturally obscure, well, that's what life was going to be, period. Getting chicken grease on the remote and talking aloud to yourself in front of the box. So on top of being in love, we were grateful to be in love. I do remember that much. I remember being grateful. Looking back, I feel apologetic toward Ed and Sandy, who live next door. We routinely ate dinner out on the enclosed front porch at midnight, even later if Michael had had a gig. We rarely got to bed before 4 a.m. We may have been noisy, laughing and chattering over a bottle of wine, cranking up the stereo when Jennifer Warren's marvelous cover of Leonard Cohen got to famous blue raincoat, Michael's and my favorite track. That said, we didn't make nearly as big a racket as the bird what we called the crazy bird. 
Later, a neighbor explained that the bird perched in the big pin oak across the street every night was a mockingbird, known for its ability to imitate the calls of other species. But I almost didn't want to know this. I liked our bird just being a little bit nuts. We developed a whole bio for this bird, how it was too socially inept to grasp that birds weren't supposed to sing their hearts out at three in the morning, and that's why it didn't have any friends. Since it couldn't settle on one song but broadcast the avian equivalent of the iTunes party shuffle, it was obviously schizophrenic. Michael was so impressed with the sophisticated intervals the crazy bird hit that he vowed to record it. He could do, see doing a whole CD inspired by its long minor chord medleys, and later I'd be sorry he never got around to it. One night, an untended car alarm was getting so irritating that I asked Michael whether we should report it to the police until he walked outside and realized that the sound was coming from the upper branches of the opposite tree. It was the crazy bird doing the whole sequence. Ah woo, ah woo, ah woo. Yow, 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 yow. More dysfunction. The mockingbird had mastered the mating call of the Toyota Corolla. <laughs> Yet the very finest entertainment during those raucous wee smalls was the raccoons. Trevanion Close was blocked at the dead end with a brick retaining wall that ran right alongside our house. Out the porch windows, we'd follow these stout, hunched creatures big as bulldogs as they lumbered across the top of that wall, obsidian eyes catching the light of the street lamp, long conical snouts snuffling curiously at the brick. Wearing concentric circles of black and white fur-like oversized spectacles, they also looked intelligent. In due course, no amateur naturalist from across the street would need to assure us that raccoons are very smart, since we'd get altogether too up to speed on this North American procyonid through the internet. Michael liked to peer out the front door and meet the animal's gaze straight on. He nursed a mythology about himself that he could communicate with animals, really connect on their wavelength, and I indulged this little vanity since it was harmless. Anyway, everything about Michael beguiled me then, and I found the conceit endearing. Me, I got pretty good at imitating the creature's throaty trill. <laughs> Halfway between a growl and a purr. Oh, I knew raccoons could be aggressive, and we were careful not to scare or tease them. I also knew they were notorious for getting into garbage cans and strewing trash all over the street. But maybe because they were so well-fed by our next-door neighbor's exposed backyard compost pile, none of our nocturnal visitors ever prized off the tops of our cans to scrounge, despite the fact that their paws have five long prehensile fingers. From what I read later, they could have assembled flat-packed furniture if they'd wanted to. At some point during our first summer, one of the raccoons got really fat, and we, we made jokes about how it should become an inspirational weight diversity speaker or a spokesman for the fat pride movement 
until one night it, she, apparently, waddled down the wall, having slimmed down quite a bit. Five babies in tow. Real heartbreakers, too. The whole family took to foraging in our grapevine. Whenever I heard that telltale rustle on the trellis, I'd shush Michael, and we'd both creep to the back window screen, not wanting to startle them away. Again, we were careful. A mother was bound to be defensive of her litter. So when Michael met the eyes of the mother through the screen, he made sure to keep his gaze reassuring. Other nights, the family would cavort at the end of the street, the kits scrabbling one at a time up the metal lamppost. We were astonished they could get any traction. Then leaping to the wall, raccoon Olympic trials. They also had a knack for disappearing. More than once, we watched the mother lead all five kits across the top of that wall until they'd pattered out of view alongside the house. So we'd skitter to the back window, expecting them to come out the other side and maybe jump down to forage on the trellis. But no raccoons. They simply vanished. It was a 20-foot sheer drop to the parking lot on the other side of that wall, so it beat me where they went. I'm sure there's an element here of you had to be there. A raccoon isn't an exotic creature for most people, but they were our raccoons, and they were exotic to us, along with the crazy bird. A sudden rustle and trill in the grapevine, or another spotting of a lone male prowling down the retaining wall, contributed to a sensation that where we lived was special, that we were special. We inhabited a secret world at the end of a private little street where the night was alive. The raccoons were wildlife. They encouraged us to believe that we were leading wild lives too. It would have been early in our second summer on Trevanion Close that we got married, larkishly, in a quick civil ceremony in the Federal Building in Lower Manhattan, acting with the impulsiveness with which most couples would go for ice cream. Meanwhile, we'd still bought hardly any furniture. And I liked the place that way, open, uncluttered, and preserving that just-moved-in feel that also reinforced the impression that any time we wanted, we could just move out. We lived there lightly. A number of things about the house were annoying if you were going to be that way. Take the place seriously, as the little dumped naturally discouraged one from doing. Unanchored, the toilet rattled every time you sat down, and I was haunted by a vision of the bowl cracking off and sending a geyser of raw sewage spuming to the ceiling like an oil strike. Closets had those hideous louvered doors from the 1970s that were always slipping off their tracks. The kitchen linoleum was prehistoric and theoretically white, its protective surface degraded. By the time either of us got around to mopping, the floor was practically black. But we grew accustomed to walking around the bucket on the porch, where the drips from the ceiling after a rainstorm syncopated Michael's latest recording. And none of these shortcomings bugged us much. I tried to keep the crumbs swept up so we wouldn't attract roaches. Some forms of wildlife were less than welcome. 
But otherwise, hell, Michael was a musician, and you know how blasé those guys are about domestic stuff. Me, I was raised in a slick, soulless suburban household in Scarsdale, full of bagel slicers and electric bread makers no one ever used. The toilets were unnervingly silent, and everything worked too well. So the kooky, jury-rigged nature of Trevanion Close was liberating. Besides, we were surely the only couple on the block who kept a whole room without a stick of furniture in it, the dining room, a.k.a. the ballroom, where Michael and I would dance to Steely Dan's dirty work with a candle in the middle of the floor. Yet apparently this notion that we could just move out any time was merely an idea of ourselves that we were attached to. See, one afternoon later that summer, an impatient rap rattled our screen door. I recognized the bossy, busty woman who was sublighting the house across from ours while the Carters were on an extended vacation in Crete. Though no older than I was, she had a prematurely matronly air. She detracted my attention before because she was forever barking admonitory or morally improving directions to her four-year-old daughter at a volume that carried to every house on the street. The showy parenthood less, I thought, for the kid than for the benefit of other adults. That is, she seemed one of those modern mothers who were sanctimonious about having made the gallant sacrifice of reproduction and always wanted credit for it. You think the owner of this house might want to sell? She began in a piercing skirl without introducing herself. Because this dead end's real good for kids, you know? Like, with no traffic and everything. I kept the screen door closed between us. I don't know, I said warily. Well, could you find out? My husband and I are looking to buy, and we've taken a real shine to this street. Meaning they had a right to this street because it was good for kids. Maybe I'm touchy because Michael and I never had them, but really. Parents these days think the whole world owes them a living and then some. I made some noncommittal noises and got rid of the bitch. But privately, I was starting to panic. Ours was a rare New York enclave where people talked to one another. A neighbor must have shared that Bob was always hard up and might part with the house for a price which was surely the case. That's when I realized that I loved this house, loved our late nights with the rustling grapevine and the raccoon Olympics and the crazy bird, and I wasn't about to have some blow-in ostentatiously mommy mom buy these creaky parquet floors out from under me. I'll cut to the chase. We bought the little dump although not obviously without making some changes. I confess, we got help from both our parents on the down payment. Still, no bank was going to give a mortgage to a self-employed mural painter and a blues guitarist who on a good night raked in 40 bucks and a few free drinks. 
I hustled because I was good and motivated, and I don't think in the end it's turned out a bad career move to work at a commercial design firm. Although concocting a corporate logo or the cover of a computer probe catalog, I sometimes miss painting Rousseau-like she-lions be beside a six-year-old's bunk bed. Faux beach pebble motifs didn't sit me in front of a screen all day either, and I miss coming home with streaks of cadmium yellow in my hair. Nevertheless, I get a kick when I spot a ketchup bottle whose label I designed, and a real job sure pays better. I grant that Michael's managing slide, a little jazz club up in Fort Greene, didn't work out quite as well. While it had seemed a good fit on the face of it, when you're managing, you're not playing. And the job was more about kegs than frets. But I'm convinced that we'd have weathered the transition to proper employment well enough if it weren't for the house. The odd alarm bell should have rung before we closed the deal. Michael's whole demeanor had always been so casual Stylishly so. He walked with a slow, syrupy saunter. And he'd often insert a languorous pause between a question and his answer, just the length of a yawn, as if debating whether to bother to respond at all. Before we put in our fatal call to Bob, Michael had been impossible to ruffle, convinced that over time most problems solved themselves when I despaired during our rental search that we'd never find an affordable place that wasn't disgusting, he'd murmured that something was sure to come along that was perfect. And he'd been right. Yet while we were still haggling with our landlord over his outrageous asking price, Michael ruined an entire evening anguishing about how we'd never get homeowner's insurance for a house so clearly dilapidated especially with ancient wiring that couldn't be up to code. At a midpoint in this mind-numbing hair tear, I did a double take. Back when we first met at CBGB's, I couldn't have imagined the words homeowner's insurance coming out of his mouth. He never seemed especially concerned with housekeeping either, strewing his dirty jeans around the bedroom, but even before we'd signed the contract, he suddenly became neurotically neat, jerking the bedspread for minutes until the piping perfectly aligned with the edge of the mattress and chiding me to hang up my kimono on its nail. Then when at the bank's insistence, we had an engineer around to certify that the house wasn't about to collapse, we led the prissy, officious little man out the musty basement to the backyard. The engineer surveyed our grapevine by then crawling deliciously to the second story and curling around our phone lines and tisked. Not desirable, he announced, making a rigid tick on his pad. The grapevine, I said. Why not? Not desirable, he repeated like a robot. But he, here's the thing. I turned to roll my eyes at Michael. And instead of grinning along with me at this loser who was dissing our fantastic grapevine, my new husband was nodding along sternly, his forehead creased. 
From then on, too, I never stopped hearing about how the grapes attracted squirrels and squirrels ruined our window screens. When the fruit rotted, it drew insects. And when I defended the vine as providing the kitchen and dining room, we'd already stopped calling it a ballroom. A luxurious green tint. He repeated with no detectable sense of humor and in exactly the same robotic drone, it's not desirable. I guess for some people who've always been free and easy, taking on responsibility makes them bigger and more solid, more grounded. That's what people say about becoming a parent. But there may be such a thing as becoming too responsible. For my part, after the closing, I was mostly excited about fixing a few of those annoyances I mentioned, neglecting to note the fact that before we bought the little dump, I hadn't been that bothered by the kitchen floor, which we replaced. And the bright red four-bow marmoleum would have been fab, except that the moment it was installed, Michael started swiffering it like every day and leaning down to obsessively scrape a little piece of squashed onion with his fingernail while I was trying to cook. I'd have been happy enough about replacing the sink unit in the bathroom too, save that it's apparently being called of vanity, made buying one humiliating. Taking the term to heart, sure enough, Michael swabbed the actually not plastic marble with bonhomie every time he finished brushing his teeth, picking at any hardened drip of Colgate, just as he did at the orts of onion on the forebone at downstairs. Meantime, I swear his walk was getting stiffer and faster, the strides shorter and a little edgy. I was game for finally hanging a few prints, posters from Michael's old gigs. But even after we fixed the leaky porch roof, Michael himself remained solely concerned with structural issues. I'd sometimes come home and find him in the middle of the living room, worrying up at a pinprick brown model on the ceiling. And he gave the impression of, that he'd been craning his neck like that for quite some time. Saturdays, he spent a good hour stalking both floors, scowling into closets, searching out cracks. He wanted to get the points done on the front brick, a fissure filled in the stoop stairs, the fractured slab of concrete in an, our overgrown rat's nest of a backyard broken up and replaced. I had to observe that none of these dreary gray improvements would make living in the house the slightest bit more enjoyable. Michael explained with paternalistic patience that it was all very well to prettify the place but a house had to be maintained. I couldn't believe he used that word, prettify. He left me feeling girly and frivolous. Well, all those radio therapists emphasize the importance of marital compromise. So when during our first summer as homeowners, Michael grew concerned that the 10 inch gap between the little dump and the retaining wall collected rain, the enemy's the enemy in my husband's life used to be trite riffs or computerized drum tracks. Now it was moisture. I didn't say, who gives a shit? Instead, being a good wife, a word I still wasn't that comfortable with, 
I agreed that, especially since the cavity was bricked up on both ends, it probably did collect a lot of rain. That side of our beloved front porch was clapboard, and for once, Michael was right, the wood could rot and draw termites. So I acceded to bringing in a contractor to somehow seal off the gap. Nevertheless, this meant we'd probably squander hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on what, what was surely the dullest square footage of the entire property. Or so I thought. What do you think is that? We'd invited a contractor for a price quote, and all three of us had clambered out the dining room window onto the trellis. As the contractor pointed his flashlight down into the dark recess between the brick wall and our house, Michael and I leaned forward to follow the beam. Something moved in the shadows, and I jumped. Is cat? He was Bangladeshi or something. I don't know, maybe. Gingerly, I peered back in. Look, it's more than one. Just then, the flashlight caught the whip of a furred tail, ringed in black and white. When I registered that our delightful family of raccoons, whose kits had already grown old enough to have babies of their own, were actually nesting in that deep, narrow gap between our house and the retaining wall, even I experienced something of a change of heart. So they weren't nocturnal visitors. They were tenants. I tend to blame Michael, but to be fair, this territory thing is pretty primitive. And there's a huge emotional difference between hosting guests and invaders. These animals weren't quite living in the house itself, but close to it. And sizable, shitting, peeing, rutting mammals bearing whole litters on the other side of our living room wall made me too a little queasy. Be that as it may, Michael did not merely exchange something of a change of heart. They're vermin, he declared over his computer that very night, loading in web page after web page. That's what they're classified as in New York, but the city refuses to take any responsibility for them. They bite, they get rabies, their feces can carry roundworm. Oh, big deal, I said distractedly, trying to fit a bowl of pasta on the table where he was working. It is a big deal, he said in the officious daddy voice that apparently accompanies home ownership. <laughs> this last year, two kids got infected with roundworm and in Brooklyn too, from raccoons. Some little baby's brain damaged and a teenager went partially blind. So they're not desirable, I said deadpan. Better believe they're not desirable, he said, failing to pick up on my illusion. And guess, just guess, what's their favorite food? I took a stab. Human eyeballs. <laughs> Grapes. My stomach sank. That was it for the vine. 
That very weekend, Michael went at the main trunk of the grapevine, six inches thick, big as a tree. With only a handsaw, the job took half an hour, and he got blisters. Once the cut was all the way through, the vine's many tributaries didn't even tremble, looking vibrant and perky and oblivious, still dangling, picked over clusters of tough-skinned green grapes as if nothing had changed. It was like watching a chicken run around a farmyard with its head cut off. Soon the chop began to bleed, sap, as the stump would continue to do for many weeks thereafter, like an undressed amputation. We'd borrowed a lopper and extension ladder from next door, one of the last favors we'd ever be able to ask Ed and Sandy, since within the week, Michael would permanently chill our relations with a set-to over their compost pile. You're never supposed to keep a heap of garbage like that without it being totally gated off, he, he would later snarl at the poor eco-conscious couple, meek, agreeable people who tore the cellophane from envelopes for recycling and had remarkably never complained back when we caroused so late at night. I quote, he read from his printout, don't put food of any kind in open compost piles. Instead, use a securely covered compost structure or a commercially available raccoon-proof composter <laughs> to prevent attracting raccoons and getting exposed to their droppings. I mean, no wonder this street is overrun. Michael ripped down branch after branch as the grapevine's tendrils clung desperately to the brick it was for all the world like tearing screaming children from the arms of their mother. Grimly, I lopped the fallen climbers into smaller uniform lengths and bound them with twine for collection. It was murder. I was in no doubt about that. The project took all day and when we arose the next morning, I couldn't remember when I'd last gone to so much effort to make my life worse. The light blared from the back windows, loud and flat. Before, the quality of the light had resembled the warm, companionable glow of a banker's lamp. And now it was more like a naked hundred watts glare from the ceiling. Suddenly, the whole ambiance of the little dump was transformed. I can't explain it, except that the house felt more ordinary more plain and stark. As the sun rose higher, too, the July heat really baked the place. I only noticed once we'd hacked it brutally to pieces how cool the vine had kept the lower floor. Meanwhile, Michael was spending every night on the internet providing a running commentary akin to regular email advisories from the World Wildlife Fund. Did you realize these wily bastards are so strong, so cunning, so agile, that they can pick an avocado from a tree and hit a barking dog from 20 feet? <laughs> they attack pets, you know. We don't have any pets, I'd say wearily. The Carters have those cats, and we're giving comfort to the enemy. Raccoons had apparently replaced moisture. That cemetery on the other side of Prospect Expressway, he'd note a bit later, 
We thought it was just us, but they're inundated. They've trapped over 500 of the monsters in the last 10 years, and this cemetery guy thinks the grounds must have thousands of coons eating the flowers, digging up the lawn. In Brooklyn, it's an epidemic. Epidemic is for diseases. Whatever. Infestation, then, he glowered. I thought, this is the sort of nitpicking point scoring that I'd noticed other couples engage in, couples I'd pitied. Of course, Michael was primarily fixated on the gap. I don't know what else to call it, since this space between the house and the wall was such a strange, dumb segment of our property that it didn't really have a name. The contractor had proposed filling the space with concrete, but we had, had somehow to get the animals out first. I was afflicted by the image of screaming baby raccoons buried alive in wet cement, like a lesser Edgar Allan Poe story. There are outfits you can hire to trap them, Michael fumed. But trapping costs a fortune, and these filthy freeloaders have memories like elephants. Take them miles away, and they come back. The real danger of eliminating their habitat is that they stay here, but try to get inside. You know they can turn doorknobs? <laughs> Not if they're locked. They love to make dens and attics and chimney flues. We'd better check the roof. Sure enough, early the next evening, I discovered the upstairs hatch open and Michael up on the roof. He was binding some cockamamie construction of chicken wire around the little alumin aluminum chimney for our furnace. None of this ranting over the computer took more than a week, I suppose, though it was a long week. In the end, we did engage the contractor to fill the raccoon den with cement and also to figure out a way of scaring the creatures off first though Michael was convinced that when their home was threatened, they'd attack, flying into our faces with bared claws. <laughs> he was certain, too, that they'd take revenge. Like how, I said. I recognized my arched, humoring tone from other spouses' supermarket bickering, audible from the next aisle. They're very destructive he'd say with a returning condescension. You haven't been doing the research. You have no idea what you're, they're capable of. They're not cute, cuddly little woodland creatures, Kate. They're diseased, they're violent, they stink, they shit everywhere, and they're vermin. The night before the contractor was due, we were treated to another sighting of our tenants. Trundling across the wall on the way back home. But instead of poking his head out the screen door to meet their glittering gaze in that special cross species communion of yore, Michael rushed to close the front door and locked it, though the screen door was already latched. Then he hurried to the back, slammed all the windows shut, and locked those too. Without any cross ventilation in July, it was sweltering. We ate dinner in silence, sweat pouring down our necks. In the end, it was pretty simple. The contractor, who seemed more amused than frightened by our predicament, pulled our garden hose onto the trellis and blasted the chasm. 
Two drenched adults and an adolescent scrabbled up the rubble that served as their entry and exit ramp and skedaddled across the trellis to Ed, Ed and Sandy's, where presumably a three-course lunch awaited on the compost pile. <laughs> After all Michael's hand-wringing, the low-tech pest control operation was an anticlimax. That night, after the habitat had be, been smoothed and sealed gray, we heard a trilling mule outside the kitchen window. It was a younger kit, not quite a baby, but the human equivalent of a 10-year-old. Presumably, the kit had been out and about during the afternoon's commotion and had returned home to discover its relatives cleared off and its house smeared up solid, like a latchkey kid who comes back after school to find an eviction notice slapped on the door and the locks changed by the landlord. I didn't know whether it, where its mother was. It didn't know where its mother was and cried and cried on the denuded trellis where it must have been hungry as well since this once well-stocked outdoor pantry was abruptly bare of grapes. After a while, I couldn't stand it. And as soon as the dishes were done, I proposed we turn in early. Michael stayed paranoid about the raccoons taking revenge for the rest of the month, and he swore that that rinky-dink metal screens were no better protection from these ravaging creatures than spider webs. Dining on the front porch with all the windows shut during a heat wave was unbearable. The stifling static air intensified the sensation that nothing was happening and that nothing would ever happen again. For the first time, we felt that metaphorical hopelessness of living at a dead end. Our once aggrieved raccoons had refrained from clawing through the roof. Once our aggrieved raccoons had refrained from clawing through the roof or burrowing past his poorly secured chicken wire down the chimney, in August, Michael relented. Slide was closed for staff vacations. On one of those weekend evenings, now rare for a couple with full-time jobs, we once more stayed up late over a bottle of wine and opened the windows again. By 3 a.m., I called his attention to an eerie quiet. A crazy bird, I said. It's gone. Over the next few months, I strained to detect the party shuffle in the pin oak, but the mockingbird had fled and never again returned to its perch high in the branches across the street. Maybe mockingbirds and raccoons have a symbiosis, but I thought we were being punished. I realize it took a while, and I don't want to be simplistic. There were other problems. Meantime, we did get the points done on the front bricks of facade. We replaced the shattered cement slab that held the drain in the backyard, even if the new slab cracked as well within the year. We duly replaced the furnace when Michael worried about its age as we duly replaced the water heater once Michael would no longer leave for the weekend lest it flood the basement. We installed a new toilet, anchored, that didn't rattle. 
The house is now better waterproof than when we bought it. Although I doubt any of these improvements seriously increased the value of the little dump when we sold up. Oh, the break was amicable, as they say. And we agreed to split the proceeds and contents 50-50, although we'd each so little capital once the equity was halved that we both had to go back to renting. Marriage may be a covered dish, but it's as dark and unfathomable under the cover as from above. If you ask Michael what went wrong, I bet he couldn't tell you. As for me, I know this is only a story I tell myself, but I still believe it all came down to the raccoons. We murdered the grapevine, and we drove off the vermin, and we obviously convinced the crazy bird that life on Trevanion Close had got a bit too sane. We'd lost the wildness, you see. In fact, soon after we filled that gap between the house and the retaining wall, it began to seem that we hadn't so much driven the wildlife away as allowed the wildlife to escape. The wildlife had up and left us. The raccoons did come back from time to time, of course. According to the internet, groups of raccoons establish a regular latrine separate from where they live. <laughs> I sometimes wonder how far our evicted tenants routinely traveled to the cement hulk of their former den to leave smelly black signatures of their disdain. <laughs> I think we've got time for a few questions before we, we have a drink. I, um, I was going to give it a crack on the Kiefer front and think that here's a man who, whose studios in the south of France or Paris, he totally wants the wildness. There are mice, there are animals, and he leaves canvases out in the rain and he attacks them with hose pipes and uh, um, flamethrowers and axes and so on. But I think I'll leave that. What I will say is that um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was not, not desirable, it was terrific. And, um, Kiefer working in books or watercolours or paintings or large-scale installations doesn't distinguish. For him, it's all part of the same process. It's a means to, to, to a similar end. Scale doesn't alter for him what he's trying to explore and wrestle with. I wonder for you whether the short story and the novel are fundamentally different in your creative approach or process or whether they seem like two sides of the same coin if I'm not mixing too many metaphors. Well, I... I, I, I... An idea for a short story and an idea for a novel feel different, and it is a matter of scale, but I think one of the powers of the short story form is what it allows you to leave out. And um, this story is a very good example. If I were writing a novel about this couple, then we couldn't skip all the, the end of the relationship. And I think that it's more effective and in some ways more, more moving, more interesting. You don't get all the details. You don't get the deterioration. 
you, you get a few clues as to what might have contributed. And she can say something like, uh, oh, you know, I don't want to be too simplistic. There were, there were other problems. And you don't need to know what those are. And you wouldn't get, that, get away with that in a novel. Well, maybe you as the reader don't care about the other problems. This is the interesting problem. This is the one that you identify with, or I don't know, I hope not, but <laughs> I don't think this is an unusual experience. And I think that's what I treasure about the form. It's the, the little, I, I tend to be uh, too wordy, too prolix in my novels especially, and I like to be able to be deft. It's restless as well. Hmm. Okay, other questions on the floor? Yeah, just the mic coming. Hi, Lionel. Really enjoyed that. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Um, Tim mentioned that you've always kind of wanted to be a writer. How long was it before you developed your own writerly routine, if indeed you have one? Um, I al I've always written something. There's not much more to it than that. Um, virtually. But, you know, there are times that I don't. I don't, I don't think there's any rule as long as you get the work done that you want to get done. So you can save it all up and, and write wildly for three weeks and you probably get a, a first draft of a novel done in three weeks. There are plenty of genre writers who do it all the time. So, you know, there is no formula. You can do whatever you want. What about place? Given the importance of the place or the house in their relationship, which may be to do with other things like ownership and so on, how important is where you write? The room, the space, the place? I just need to be home. I've never been able to write in a hotel room. And I don't write on airplanes. Yeah, it's just a sense of being home, however I define that. And, you know, I did a residency at, in Falmouth in Cornwall uh, just this spring. And the reason I was able to work there is that it was for long enough. It was a six-month, a six-week residency, and that's long enough that I had my own little flat, and I made it my home, and that made it so I could write there. Any other questions? Again. <laughs> Me again. Hi. <laughs> um, you said you've collected short stories. How do you pick which ones to go together? Do you find, did you find that this collection, there was a theme that ran through it, or? No, it's more a matter of, uh, I mean, I have actually never published a collection of short stories, and I find that I'm accumulating stories uh, that are focused on this one issue of property, and uh, I've written a couple deliberately, be, you know, because I know they will fit in. And I'm, I'm now starting to, the, the intention is starting to cohere. But it was by accident at first, and it's obviously just, I, I've lived here too long. <laughs> so I'm obsessed with property along with everyone else. Back here. Be sure to, um, this is recorded, that's why you need to. Um, what was it that you were looking at that made you think of the story in the exhibition? Um, let's not let's let's not misunderstand one another. I was initially asked by Pindrop just to read a short story, and we arrived on the date of the tenth of October, and I showed up. 
But actually, it was the sculpture outside. It was the language of birds, <laughs> clearly. Obviously, it was the mockingbird. How, if at all, does performing your short stories change your relationship with them? Um, when it works, I like them better. You know, I mean, I, I, I like being able to deliver a line well. I find, you know, I, I like performing and I, you know, sometimes I get a little impatient. I think, oh, I could have cut that. Because reading it aloud is a very good test of that. But at the same time, it's nice to be able to, um, to deliver passages in the spirit that I wrote them so that you can hear them as I hear them. I, you know, I enjoy readings. I know that they have a terrible reputation. <laughs> it's very kind of you all to come out anyway. Um, but I think that they, they, can add, they can be a little bit of added value. Um, you've just been awarded the BBC National Short Story Award, so congratulations on that. Really fantastic. Thank um, you. Do you think that's changed your approach to the short story at all? It's moved the collection up the agenda a little. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's, let's do that question that's always asked, but again, I'll just refract it through the Kiefer lens very briefly, which is, just for those of you who are interested. Um, He's just doing his job. I'm just doing my job, exactly. Um, in, 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 from the beginning of his career, even in the most um, now notorious and celebrated of works, the occupations and the heroic symbols where he made the banned Nazi gesture for all sorts of political reasons about reclamation and denial and so on. Kiefer also said recently that it was his father's uniform and it was also to ask himself a personal question, what would he have done in the same situation? To which he says there's no answer, he's not sure, but it, it was an exercise, it was, that was part of the motivation. Um, what about the relationship between personal experience and your work. I know you've been asked it in the context of various works, and your latest novel, Big Brother, has a, a close relationship, to, I think, to your brother. But mm. generally and specifically, maybe in, in the context of, of vermin, how much is the how much is personal experience there? I'm probably not going to tell you, but <laughs> I will share with you that, uh, especially when we first bought a house, my husband became really neurotic about it. And it was a big drag. <laughs> However, we're still married. And I think this story was a threat. Okay, is it time for one more question? Okay, last question, then we'll have a drink. Yeah, hi. Um, does your writing help you to put things that have troubled you, such as vermin, into perspective in other um, scenarios that you write about? I don't know whether it puts them in perspective, but it, it gets them out of my system. I think that's a lot, why a lot of people write. And it, that doesn't mean that what, what you write necessarily has to be autobiographical. Um, you know, in this story, for example, I'm not a mural painter, though I met one once and I thought that was a really fun thing to do for a living. I just thought, wow. Um, and she was really good at it. Uh, so yes, there is an, an element of exorcism in writing. Even One of the things I especially enjoy 
is when you change things or you know you're writing something that is actually not from your experience at all and yet your your feelings and and bits of your life in however disguised a fashion sometimes disguised even from yourself end up filtering up through it anyway and i i i really enjoy that process partly because when when my, uh, you know my personal feelings and and experiences are translated and and transposed and changed for me as well as for you it's it, it, i don't understand the process entirely but it it does seem to communicate better with others uh when i'm not just using autobiography and it's you know it's just little lionel shriver that you know we've changed the letters around or something so in some in some ways sometimes the the more you change the 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 more personal it gets it it just ends up being a better uh vehicle for communicating with an audience i think it's always important to remember that that you're you're writing for someone else and not yourself this whole thing of writing for yourself i i think that's a young person's perspective and uh becoming more mature for uh, for a writer is is to realize that there really is an audience out there and if what you're doing is worthwhile then it needs to communicate with those people and sometimes i'm quite humbled when i meet an audience of my readers and i humbled and frightened actually because they're all so different and we we only have so much in common and people come from so such different backgrounds and they have different political opinions and i realize what a big challenge it is it's almost paralyzing i can't think about it too much i love that idea as you get older you actually write for an audience but also that your work can still be a marital threat it's terrific <laughs> um on which note we should end um lionel's latest book big brother is available and she'll i think you'll sign copies Happy and to. and we'll have a drink for those who'd like to in the sal saloon there and those of you who have tickets please go and see kefa and make connections or don't but Predominantly, Lionel Shriver, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.